Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about unleashing the human potential through learning. And it's an absolute pleasure to have on the show Amy Clement, who is the managing partner and board member of Imaginable Futures, a philanthropic investment firm, part impact investor, part foundation grant maker that exists precisely to do this, to unleash human potential through learning. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, to large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. In 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So make sure you check them out at quilt.ai. Today, it's a wonderful pleasure to host on the show Amy Clement, who is the managing partner and board member of Imaginable Futures, a philanthropic investment firm. They are a venture of the Amidiar Group, that was founded and is funded by Pierre and Pam Amidiar. And many of you will know Pierre Amidiar is the founder of eBay. Imaginable Futures is a relatively new venture, having just celebrated their one year anniversary, and they were spun out of the Amidiar Network, where they were previously the education initiative of Amidiar Network. And without further ado, Amy, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks, Alberto. It's a joy to be here. Uh, great. Well, it's good to speak with you again. I know it's been a while and I know you guys have been going through a lot of uh, turbulence like the rest of the world when it comes to uh, <laughs> to anything having to do with inter international work, learning, education and so forth. I guess we could start by by finding out a little bit about this fairly new venture, this uh, imaginable futures. What's it all about? Yeah, yeah, it's um it's, it's both a new venture. We're both a baby, as you said, just, we just celebrated our one year anniversary. Um, and we're also, we've, you know, we were previously the education initiative of Omidyar group, um, of uh, Omidyar network, sorry. And, you know, took with us many, many years of investing and philanthropy and a, and a large portfolio. So we exist to unleash human potential through learning mm. so that all people can thrive in our very interdependent and ever-changing world. And this all is very critical. We very, we very much take an intentional view towards equity in our work. Um, our approach, we take the best of both entrepreneurship and systems change approaches. Mm -hmm. So these entrepreneurial approaches, you know, coming from, from Silicon Valley and our roots in social entrepreneurship, we invest in and support entrepreneurs and change makers who really work at the edge of innovation. And we do that both for-profit and non-profit, as you said, because we know that innovation is required. Um, there was no doubt before COVID, and now it's just starkly clear. And we also take a systems change approach. So we work deeply to understand systemic forces, barriers, and enablers. And we work together with the ecosystem, really, to build healthier systems. 
Um, so we used our philanthropic capital to fund and support sector infrastructure, knowledge creation, policy advocacy, et cetera, that's really informed by our investments in, in innovation. And we can do this because we've got this you know, hybrid structure that you mentioned that's part philanthropic foundation and part impact investor. Tell us a little bit about that uh, because it's not every day that you come across such a structure. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a unique structure and it's really our legacy from Omidyar Network um, that um, really, really works well in the learning and education space because, you know, as you know, Alberto, learning and education is both public sector, private sector, and social sector. So in order to really create change, you do need all the tools in the toolbox and we need to be able to work flexibly across all of those players. So we do that um, with staff across the U.S., in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in Nairobi, Kenya, and in London, England. And we kind of leverage this global platform to stay at the forefront of innovation and sort of learning science and see what's happening around the world, while also staying really locally rooted to make sure we're addressing the local needs of where we work. Mm. What's an imaginable futures looks like? So how many people do you have in the team? You're, you're based out in Silicon Valley right now, but you mentioned you have a, a geographic footprint that's certainly international. Tell us a little bit about who is imaginable futures. What are the, who are the people in there? Yeah, we're a really diverse group. So we're um, a little less than 20. Okay. And um, um, it's, a, it's a diverse group of people with a variety of backgrounds. Um, from, you know, from education backgrounds to tech backgrounds to consulting backgrounds to other nonprofit backgrounds, kind of you name it. And, um, and I really think that that's critical for, for informing our, our work. Fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the subtle difference between learning and education. So if I gather things correctly, you like to present yourselves as focused on learning and unleashing human potential through learning versus having people think of you purely as education. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think our, we recognize that, that learning starts, starts early. Um, and, you know, 85% of brain development happens in the first five years. We do a lot of work in early childhood, um, which is sort of outside, often outside the, the formal education systems. Even in our work in K-12, um, we have done work outside the formal education systems. And as we look at some of our work in post-secondary, also outside, I mean, it, learning is lifelong, life-wide. Mm. Um, and so we, um, that's, how, that's how we like to talk about it. Yeah. And now you're, bigger, you're part of this bigger Amidyar group or a venture of the Amidyar group. Can you give us a little bit of insight of where you fit into that bigger ecosystem and also what prompted that... Um, I don't know if you could say a restructure or a recalibration, because you used to lead the education initiative uh, within Aminiar, and now you're, you're heading this up. Give us a little bit of a flavor of where Imaginable Future sits and, and the organization in a broader sense. Yeah, so, so Pam and Pierre Omidyar are, are just really remarkable humanists, and I just feel so grateful to, to be able to work with them and, and learn from them. And so the Omidyar group are all of the organizations, um, over 15 organizations that are founded and funded by the Omidyars. Within the Omidyar group, Omidyar Network um, is a, um, was one of the organizations within the Omidyar group 
Mm-hmm. And OBDR Network really restructured itself over, over the past multiple years. There, there were initiatives or business units or program areas within OMIDIAR Network that had grown to be much larger than the OMIDIAR Network I joined back in 2010. Mm. And there were you know, five, different, five different business units that um, were really quite different, working in different sectors with different goals, using different tools. And what we found was you know, living within one organization with the same investment committee, <laughs> the same HR policies, um, the same um, you know, Twitter feed, that it was becoming constraining. And so we've each one of us spun out. And um, what that's really enabled us to do is, is just be so much more empowered and flexible and nimble and accountable to our work. And I'll tell you, um, having spun out just six weeks before COVID hit, Alberto, I was so thankful. You know, I was just so thankful that we had the space to respond to what, you know, the ecosystems needed from us um, in learning um, and, and to be, um, yeah, just really, really grounded and, and, and nimble. Was it was it a challenging exercise that whole rebrand? I mean, it's more than rebranding, but many people, especially within education, within early years, they'd know a meteor, they'd they'd know a meteor network, and all of a sudden, well, here's imaginable futures, which sounds great, but maybe not everybody, you know, not everybody knows what that is. Was it a challenge on the on the on the branding side and how you're how you're perceived and how how responsive people are to your emails and so forth? You know, I think. Um... It was a lot of work to spin up a new organization, that's for sure, um, because we really kind of started it from kind of the, the, the ground up to say, you know, who do we want to be? What do, how, how do we want to show up? Um, the branding side, you know, not so much. I think that in the um, kind of investing in philanthropic world, so much is about the individual. And we just have such great relationships with all the organizations we we work with. And the other thing is I am... I am very conscious of the power dynamic when you hold a checkbook. Um, and, um, and so we're, we have, we've heightened awareness of that and we're constantly examining how we, how we attune to and, and, and share that power. Um, but so, so it wasn't as much of a challenge as I thought it might be. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the power dynamic. I wasn't going to go there, but it's it, I think it's a very relevant topic and something you're bringing up. And, you know, that, that power dynamic, power imbalance, um, the global north, the global south. And and I know you guys really go out of your way to 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 make sure that it's not just a one way conversation, but it's very inclusive and that you're 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 uh, you're, you're listening and, and engaging with what's going on literally on the front lines. Give us a little bit of a, of, um, of insight into your efforts and success in, in being able to do that. Yeah, I think this has been huge. Um, this has really been huge for us. Um, you know, I think more recently as the world turned upside down, um, in addition to supporting our existing portfolio, we knew we really, really needed to listen even more deeply mm. from our strategy. And, and so we took some very highly participatory approaches, you know, bringing in students and parents and teachers, in addition to the entrepreneurs and the policymakers and the funders, et cetera. And so as we had these conversations, we really included 
all types of knowledge, right? The stories, the empirical experiences of these of individuals in the system, their narratives, not just the McKinsey reports or the landscape documents. And and really it was highly transformational for our team. And for us, I think it's just a new way for for philanthropy to be operating. Um, and you know what that reinforced for us was that these systems of learning are perfectly designed to produce the results they produce, which are highly inequitable. You know, they're perfectly designed to produce inequity and that their roots are in colonization and racism and patriarchal culture. And that if we do not actively name this and fight against it, that we're merely reinforcing the status quo. So, so because of that, we've really been, and, and we knew that before, but gosh, was it reinforced across all the, and this was across all the regions we work, high income, medium income, and low income contexts. Um, and so we've really been reexamining our practices, our ways of being, our approaches. Um, and it's manifested in really being, um, you know, much, much more inclusive. Um, and really thinking about co-creating and power shifting, power sharing. Um, so we've experimented with a bunch of things, things like we've, we've built a panel of student parent advisors in the U S who advise not just on our strategy, but have even provide input on our specific investments. We've launched a fund that's, that's enabling the, the people we serve to drive and help allocate the funds, um, we, you know, we just, we bring in these voices whenever we can. And, and gosh, it's been such an amazing learning experience and also just, you know, relationship building experience. Um, but I, I really think, you know, as, as we take a step back and look at this, I think this new way of being a really kind of conscious awareness, creating space, championing voices, co-creating solutions, that there's a lot of experimenting and learning that we as philanthropy, um, have ahead of us mm. and it's exciting it's hard work but it's really exciting work it must be it must be and tell me a little bit about the portfolio so when you spun out it, it wasn't like you just made 200 million dollars worth of investments over the last year a lot of these investments were investments that were in in place when you were within as it were the immediate network now they're standing alone but gives a, a flavor for the portfolio and also sort of that um I guess the split between more traditional foundation grant making and impact investing. What does that look like? And um, if, if we're if we're looking at the organization, yeah, yeah. Um, so our background, as I, as I mentioned, is really in social entrepreneurship and, and our roots in Silicon Valley. So, you know, we think about this sort of investing at the edge of innovation and investing in these in these change makers. So, you know, one example that I'll give there um, is New Globe. Mm -hmm. which is best known um, for their, for as Bridge International Academies, their community schools that are across Africa and India. And they're just a fabulous example of innovation. Um, they, um, New Globe supports visionary governments to really transform their public education systems um, and currently reach a million children a day in impoverished communities through a, a wide portfolio of programming. Um, What they, what they did is through their community schools, they have, which is a really scalable platform, they built what I think of as kind of like this operating system for basic education okay. um, that um, 
is everything from, you know, lesson plans to student assessments to how to manage schools to, you know, sort of the visibility across the network for, for government leaders. Um, and really based in tech, you know, their curriculum is in the cloud. So they can, um, they're just such a learning organization. You know, they can take the, the feedback back from their, you know, million children every day and, and use that to go kind of edit and refine and revise the, revise the lesson plans on a, on a regular basis. And during COVID, I was just, you know, so overwhelmed by how, how innovative they were. Like so many others, they had to pivot, right? Schools were closed. And they launched Bridge at Home, which was this multimodal platform of radio lessons, WhatsApp, online, paper-based that was all integrated. And they could do this far faster than most because their systems were all in the cloud. Do you engage with them as a, as a, uh, as a grant maker or are you investing with certain metrics and, you know, um, yeah, no, we're, we are an investor. We led their series A investment back in 2009 and have been, have been with the company since. Great. Great. What's, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of philanthropists who listen to the show, uh, education is a big one. So sustainable development goal four. Uh, the other the other two who sort of you know that that also click on very closely to SDG four is SDG five on gender, and then SDG two on hunger, nutrition, and you know I always say there's no point in having a sh brand new shiny school if if the child is malnourished or if the teaching quality is poor. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, what advice would you give to a philanthropist who's listening to this right now, who's thinking, well, they want to make a difference, but sometimes. Just building another school isn't the answer. There must be more. So, mm -hmm. how do you start thinking about reaching those truly marginalized and uh, and trying to think about how you can deploy some of the funds in that space in education? Thinking perhaps with an innovation cap as well. Right now, what I would say is we are in an unbelievable crisis of learning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from losing you know up to fifty percent of childcare seats in the U.S. to just really basic literacy and numeracy. Uh, Loss of the midday meal, as you say. So we are in a we are in a, a like just a foundational crisis. And so what I would say is, in the next few years, really look at in the communities close to you, the communities of need close to you. Um, understand how you can help with issues of hunger. I mean, it is a when our work we talk about unleashing human potential through learning recognizing that learning is very intersectional, right? It does include nutrition, includes social, emotional well-being, you know? And, um, and so I would say, reach out to the communities close, closest to you in need and understand whether it be, you know, issues of hunger, whether it be, um, you know, supporting a, a, a you know, teacher well-being program, See what's most needed in your community and listen to the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In your case, you do, do you take fun, funding from external stakeholders, or you're purely funded by by? We uh, don't. No, mm -hmm. we don't. We've got we've got one LP in the Omidyars. Right. And in terms of making those decisions, so you, I think you alluded to the uh, investment committee. Uh, what it used to look like, you know, when you were part of the of the broader network. Now you're you're making those calls uh, more independently. How often do you make these uh, investment decisions? Like, what's the cycle? 
if somebody's interested in, in, in securing funding or investment, how do they engage with you? What are the things you're looking for? Yeah. So we don't have an, an investment cycle. We don't, um, we don't have a, a proposal process. We're really organic and try to be as responsive as possible to the, to the needs and, and to be entrepreneur friendly. Mm-hmm. So, um, please don't create specific documents for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, what I would say is, is, is reach out and connect. We do have specific areas, um, in which we invest, which is all outlined on our website. Um, so I would say, you know, take, take a look on our website and then there's a way to contact us through our website. And really as we, as we evaluate, uh, entrepreneurs, um, we really are looking at things like, are they, are they reaching the populations that we care about? Mm Mm-hmm. Which are really, really low income and previously kind of underestimated, underserved populations. We look at are they um, grounded in in the science of learning? So it doesn't have to necessarily be evident. You know, evidence. We don't need to have evidence produced as yet because we often invest early stage. But um, you know, is is it grounded in the science of learning? We look at is a, is a values aligned entrepreneur. We're deeply rooted in values, and we look at is there potential for scalable change. That sc- it doesn't necessarily need to be direct scale. It can be through replication or through TA. But is there is there potential for scalable yeah. change? The sort of investment sizes that you get involved with. Is there an average? If, is there such a thing as an average? Yeah, I mean it's really flexible because we do we'll do small kind of project-based grants in the order of, you know, $100,000 and then we have made investments up to 3 3 to 4 million. Mm-hmm. And we typically try to do um general operating grants understanding that that's that's really what's most needed when we when we um invest on the grant side when we make when we make grants so there is there is unlike unlike the 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 misconception that many people have there is funding for core costs there is funding for operating a a charity on the ground or an organization on the ground it's not just donors thinking we're only going to give to uh to a specific program and nothing else yeah i mean that that i think is one of the one of the big misses of philanthropy you know, I was part of the early PayPal team and helped help scale that business and take it international. And there's no way we would have been able to do what we did if we hadn't had significant vest- investment at the core and been able to attract fabulous leadership and build strategic plans and do all the things that you do when you build a great business. So for us, um, you know, understanding, you know, the the leadership team and and then supporting the 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 strategy um and supporting that leadership team is really core Mm. do you uh therefore also act sort of like an incubator as well i mean are you deploying some of your technical expertise to to engage with the management teams on the ground as much as we can we do um so we you know in some of our larger investments we may take board roles um we you know we we certainly try to share as much of our learning and networks, et cetera, with, with our portfolio. So we, we, we try to be, we try to be engaged there as much as possible. We also try to 
you know, support our organizations. We save some budget to be, um, to support in sort of a very bespoke way, whether it be, you know, with a, you know, a leadership coach or diversity, equity, and inclusion training, or, you know, recruiting such that we can, um, right. you know, really be supportive of the, or- of the organization. I'm with you. I'm with you. So what are you most excited right now? What is it that you're losing sleep because you're just so excited with the potential that Oh, there's so, so much. I mean, maybe I'll give, I'll give two broad examples, but it's really, really hard to choose. So, um, I'm just, I'm really excited at the momentum that we're seeing in early childhood in the United States. Mm -hmm. I would say over the past five years, um, we've seen a real kind of connection between the science, right. And the science, which says, you know, 85% of brain development happens and um, you know, that there's a return on investment of like seven to eight times together with the social entrepreneurship community and the sort of technology community and the innovation community. Um, and so we're seeing some great momentum there. We've, we see fund an organization called promise venture studios, um, which is like this design studio for for for-profit and nonprofit early childhood entrepreneurs um, had start doing a lot of work on the innovation front. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's, it's really interesting. And then I couple that with the very devastating and, um, unfortunate, you know, um, repercussions of, of, of COVID and the pandemic on the early childhood space and, and the, and the, and the awareness, the awareness, the growing awareness that parents and, and, and communities now have that childcare is a backbone of our economy. If childcare is not open, businesses cannot open. Um, and, and so I think that there is, and, and you see it in the new administrations, um, in their plans, you know, I just think that there's a growing opportunity for both kind of public funding and policy, and then to embrace the innovation that we are now seeing to bring more affordable, accessible, quality childcare to more families. Mm. Yeah. Well, the early, early years piece is, is key, 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 key. Um, and for any listeners who care about that space, again, just check out professor Jack Shonkoff at Harvard and Jim Heckman at the university of Chicago, uh, the former on the neuroscience, the latter on the economic arguments for investing in early years. Both of those are great. So how did you get into all of this? So you came through PayPal in the late nineties. One of the one of the early employees, then eBay. That's not the traditional career trajectory of somebody running a foundation necessarily. Give us a little bit of a of a, of a insight into the narrative that is Amy. Yeah, uh, you know, I was recru- recruited to join X dot com um, by Elon Musk in, in 1999, and I was in the middle of applying to business schools. Um, and needless to say, that never happened. I do not have my graduate graduate degree. I joined um, as the first product manager, and we we merged with PayPal several months later. Um, we raised our $100 million Series C round right before the bubble burst in 2001. So I know that um, so much of kind of starting a business is, is really luck and timing. We went public in February of 2002, and then we were acquired by eBay, you know, shortly thereafter. And my learnings from that are you know, many fold, first of all, just amazing opportunities for scale, um, you know, and building out a global, just world-class product and design team. 
I ran product and design there for many years and, and building this product that really, you know, continues to be the backbone of the internet for still to today. Um, but my, my key learnings there were around, you know, just entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurship is wayfinding. It is finding the path by making it that no one has done this before. So there is no right one right way. And I think that is like a deep, you know, that is a really critical learning for leadership is that there is no one right way. Right. And so it's about getting out, out there and trying and taking risk. I think the other big learning from that was the importance of empathy and leadership, mm-hmm. the importance of, um, of connecting that it's not just about what you know, but it, and, and what you do, it's about how you do it. Um, and that I think is, um, that's really core to who, who I am as a leader is kind of the, is, is the, is the empathy, the compassion, the how, um, and then I think from there through the eBay acquisition, I got to know the work of Omidyar network and was really, really blessed to make that transition back in 2010. Um, in the early, in the early years, I led a lot of our work in emerging markets across multiple sectors. We were sort of less sector focused. Mm -hmm. And then in 2013, we kind of moved to more of a concentrated focus on education and learning. And gosh, in the past eight years, I have learned so much. We have learned so much and, and we continue to grow and change and I continue to grow and change. I'm just really grateful that I get to work on such meaningful issues with such incredible people and partners. Where, where do you want to see things? Uh, how do you want to see things unfold for the next 10 years? What would success look like in 2030 at uh, imaginable futures? I mean, for us, for, for me, I think so much of it is that we as a human race recognize our interconnectivity, mm-hmm. you know, that we wake up to the dependence that we have on one another um, whether motivated by sort of a spiritual awakening in these very sort of existential crisis times or a purely economically motivated one and that we just really rec- reckon with our interdependence and that that awareness leads to greater inclusion and that power is shared to include more and more voices from previously excluded and underestimated groups. And that thus by including, you know, by including those, those new people, new voices, that new knowledge, new insights, new solutions are brought to the fore. And that this ultimately just, you know, creates a more just world where all people can thrive. Um, so it's kind of really reinforcing my, this point around, it's not just about listening to the customer. You know, Alberto, I've spent the last 20 years of my career doing this and preaching it as I led product and user experience and usability and investment and more. But, you know, really this idea that and this, you know, this is more, this requires a new way of being, of kind of conscious awareness of creating space, of championing voices, of co-creating solutions. Hmm. Are you feeling optimistic for the, for 2030 and where we're heading? I think I hold it all at the same time. You know, the data is just pretty terrible on where we are, whether it be, you know, girls not returning to school because of, you know, child marriages and pregnancies and to, you know, the, the, the devastating learning loss and gaps and just incredibly polarizing inequities. And um, at the same time, we have seen dramatic innovation and we have leapfrogged in awareness of things like childcare, um, awareness of the digital divide. You know, there, there has been a, 
just a massive growth in, in awareness. And I think we've seen the early and incredibly encouraging responses from the ecosystems to try to, to reimagine and really say, what if? Yeah. Yeah. Key takeaway for our listeners before we wrap things up for today, what's that one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think it would be, you know, get involved, the urgency and the need um, that there is, there is no better time than the present. Um, and that, um, you know, this is not just about our future economies, but just, you know, well-being and social cohesion and peace. And I, th I think the other thing that I would just say is, you know, one of my really big um, learnings over the past year has been around the importance of values. Okay. Um, when we spun out, the very first thing we did was co-create our values. And I had no idea how like prescient this act was because when the world turns on its head, that's all you've got. Um, your strategy and your plans are out the door, but anchoring back on your values really provides stability. So, um, I, love it. I would, I would really encourage people to, uh, to take the time and, 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 and do that with their teams, with, the, with themselves, with their families Yeah. to really anchor in what is most important. Because I think that will guide your, your, your actions, your words, um, and help create a better world for all of us. I love that. Anchoring back to your values. That's ultimately what really matters. You've been listening to Amy Clement, who is the managing partner at Imaginable Futures. Uh, to, our, to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in every week. And Amy, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you again and hosting you today on the Do One Better podcast. Thank you, Alberto. Wonderful. And that's a wrap. Thanks so very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. For a full transcript of today's conversation, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. It makes a huge difference indeed. Next week, I'm hosting David Miliband on the show, and we're going to be talking about his work at the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. So do click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and also leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you so very much. As always, be well, and I'll see you next week. <music>